a tune that is about a modern great love in Ireland. This is a, a tune written by Mairead Mooney for her husband, Frankie Kennedy, who died tragically young. She's a fiddle player, he was a flute player, and they started the band Alton together. So this is Song for Frankie. Welcome back, everyone. Um, and now we're moving on. It's almost we're going to have just the next four or five poems are extraordinary and very difficult. Um, I could spend a long time speaking about any individual one of them, but Richard has told me I can't speak for more than ten minutes, so I will try to restrain myself. Um, uh, just to give a little bit of biographical detail... Um, in 1917, now we jumped ahead a little bit from, from the, in the last section because um, we read a prayer for my daughter. Now, Yates had a daughter, so where did he get a daughter? Well, he did um, marry. Um, he married that year. Who did he marry? Well, he married a woman called Georgie Hyde Lees, and even though we saw, heard a lot of, about the women in Yates's life and women biographically as well as, in, as well as in his poetry, played a huge role. And we heard about Olivia Shakespeare, his close friend uh, in, in Friends, and Lady Gregory, another... another um, he saw Olivia Shakespeare as of his kindred of his soul and Maud Gaughan as the opposite. So Maud Gaughan was the one who created a huge passion, though he did have a brief affair with Olivia Shakespeare. Lady Gregory, his extraordinary collaborator and um, uh, supporter, who used to give him cocoa and hot water bottles in Cool Park uh, every year. Um, we saw her friendship. But I think we also need to give our due recognition to George, his wife, Georgina Hyde-Lees, who Lees we call George. How did he get to the position where he mar mar married George? Well, um, Richard read um, Easter 1916, uh, when it's famous poem about Easter Rising. There's a line there about a drunken, vainglorious lout but he too I will number in my song. That drunken and glorious lout was John McBride, who married 
uh, um, Maud gone, much to Yates's terrible disappointment. Um, and it wasn't a happy marriage. Uh, they separated. Uh, he did have a daughter, uh, or she did have a daughter uh, with him. Um, and uh, uh, in 1916, McBride was killed, uh, executed. Um, so that's why he gets the mention uh, and the elegy in, uh, in, 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 in the poem. And this frees up Maud Gone. So in 1916, Yeats duly goes and proposes to Maud again, gets rejected. So then he moves his attention to her daughter Isolt, uh, 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 gone, who he, to whom he proposes. Isolt also rejects Yeats. Um, so this is an era before um, Tinder. <laughs> so what's he to do? He finally, he, he, he's aware at this stage in his life that um, he needs a wife. He wants, he wants to marry. He wants to settle. This is an urge he's, that, that's reaching on him. At the start of his collection, the first poem of his collection, Responsibilities, he asks pardon from his old fathers that he has not produced a child. He's only produced a book at the age of 49. And he says rather grandly, my blood that, has not, that you've given me that has not passed through any huckster's loins grandly and inaccurately from his own point of view. Yeats liked to elevate his, his genealogy. But um, uh, he, 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 so anyway, he, he proposes to uh, a colleague, a young woman, um, in, in, who in, shares his interest in the occult um, and is accepted. And they go on honeymoon and something really extraordinary and career-changing happens on this honeymoon in the south of England. At the start, he's very unhappy, and he writes to Lady Gregory about how unhappy he is. He feels guilty. He feels he might have made the, ma the wrong marriage. Um, he feels that uh, he's very, still very tied up with his, his passion for, for, for uh, Isolt and Maud, and he's feeling very despondent. But about three or four days into the honeymoon, Isolt, uh, uh, George starts doing something that completely compels him. And that something is automatic writing. She starts trying. She doesn't think she's any gift for it. She's going to pretend to do it. Automatic writing means she's a cipher for spirit world or for me. For, she's a med, she acts as a medium. The idea of automatic writing is you let your pen move across the page and without your consciousness obtruding and certain occult knowledge comes out. Right up WB's street. He loves this. Uh, so his attention lifts from uh, his despondency and thus, rather against the odds, begins not just a very successful marriage, which endures to the end of his life, but also a new font of images for his poetry. This results eventually in the 1925 publication, A Vision. Um, I don't recommend it. <laughs> uh, it's, it is a bizarre amalgam of occult and information from, from, from um, George's automatic writing. Um, very, very obscure, full of cycles of history, uh, personality types. But it is nonetheless a useful annotator for scholars trying to get behind the poetry. Now, sometimes getting behind the poetry, even the poems we're about to hear, can be 
really beside the point. Let the difficulty of the poems just float by and listen to the language. Um, you could spend an awful lot of time unpacking a poem like The Tower or um, you know, a really famous poem like The Second Coming. It, it, its strangeness is part, of it, is part of its power. I will just say, so I'm going to restrict what I want to say about it, but I will just say one thing from the, A Vision, which might gloss both uh, The Second Coming and Lida in The Swan. In A Vision, Yeats comes up with a theory of history as cyclical, and the cycle of history lasts for 2,000 years. And for Yeats, we're coming to an end of a cycle, or we were coming to an end uh, of a certain cycle of history, a cycle that was inaugurated by the Incarnation, by the Christian era. It was inaugurated by the birth of Christ, and it's now coming to the end. He has this symbol of a gyre, what he called the gyres, which is something, a spiral, which is coming to the end of a spiral, uh, starts at a point, cycles on and on, and gets wider. In the second coming, he, this is, uh, his symbol for this is the falcon and the falcon. The falcon, can I hear the falconer? Things fall apart, the centre cannot hold. This is his power to express historical crisis, which is evidenced in the historical crisis he sees around him at this era, after the First World War, after the Russian Revolution. There's war in Ireland but it also ties into his own personal idiosyncratic mythology. The companion poem is Lida and the Swan, which is uh, take, which the, the image comes from a, a pit of uh, Greek mythology where, where Zeus takes on the image of a swan, takes on the form of a swan, often when Zeus, uh, the Greek god, takes an int- sexual interest in a mortal, he often takes on the form of an animal, before he, um, uh, you know, has a sexual experience with that mortal. And whenever that happens, there is always issue. And one of the issues, one of the children born of Leda, is Helen of Troy. Helen of Troy famously leads to the um, Trojan Wars, and that's the reference in that poem, poem to the burning roof and tower and Agamemnon dead. But it's an echo because that, for Yeats, inaugurated the period of history before the Christian period. So the second coming in the Leda and the Swan, which are both poems of apocalypse, poems of transformation, poems of sudden transformation. And we saw in Easter 1916 that Yeats's idea of history and the way his poetry relates to history is through incarnation or apocalypse rather than evolution. That's to him as how history changes. So the poems have their power because things happen suddenly. A terrible beauty is born because in 1916. Here, too, he is witnessing, yearning for, poeticizing a moment of uh, uh, change. Um, we also we have poems here from, from The Tower and The Winding Stair, which I said at the start are amongst Yeats's great modernist achievements as collections. Um, Sailing to Byzantium, another another uh, very, very famous poem, the first poem of the Tower, a poem of escape, um, which, you know, looks back, hugely different from the early poems, like the Lake Isle of Inishfree. But like the Lake Isle of Inishfree, written when he was a relatively young man in London, he's looking around and he's seeing sensuality and he's seeing youth and he desires to go away. And in his mind, in his myth, it's 5th century AD 
uh, Byzantium, which is now Istanbul, um, where he wants to go. He sees this as a place of perfection, but it's a very frozen sort of perfection. As ever with Yeats, the urge to escape is fraught with ambivalence, uh, and it's actually not that attractive, the image of ambivalence. But Sailing to Byzantium is one of Yeats's great poems of old age, um, and responding poetically about old age. But as ever with Yeats, the real nux is the conflict itself. It's the urge to go on the journey rather than the arrival. Um, when we find old age and the passing of time and death, really huge questions surfacing again and again in these poems uh, that we're about to hear, often refracted through political crisis uh, and marrying political crisis, political change, violence um, that he sees in Ireland and also in Europe with his own hugely significant grapplings with the meaning of life, with the purpose of living, with the purpose of work. And these are the questions that come up in a, in a great poem like Among Schoolchildren, uh, or indeed Lapis Lazuli, which is Yeats's reflections on catastrophe that he writes in 1939. He doesn't witness the Second World War because he dies before it, but the year he, he, he's aware of the storm clouds that are gathering. And it's a poem, Lapis Lazuli, um, which Jeff will be reading, which, uh, where, where, where he ponders that. And he puts a Western artistic response and an Eastern artistic response, um, uh, considers how, how they can mediate catastrophe, how they can mediate suffering. And it's actually a very affirmative poem. Um, this, he has this idea, which he borrows from the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche, of tragic joy and eternal recurrence, which that poem uh, uh, um, plays on. A brief gloss, I think. Um, I should say that these are the poems. One of the remarkable things about Yeats is how fragments of his language have entered our culture. A terrible beauty is born, for instance. Um, tread softly for your tread in my dreams. Equally, these are the poems which have given us phrases like um, No Country for Old Men, which was a film a few years ago, uh, a line from Sailing to Byzantium, or The Second Coming, which may, I think, be the most quoted Yeats poem. Often, often these quotes come out of context. The best lack all conviction, the worst are full of passionate intensity. The centre cannot hold. Um, things fall apart, the name of a novel by Chinua Cheba, the, the, the uh, African novelist. Uh, these phrases just enter the culture. They're so extraordinarily um, quotable. Um, I'll just briefly gloss, just, just looking through the poems you're about to hear, what might help. Eva Gore Booth and Con Markovitz. Um, Constance Markovitz was also numbered in Easter 1916. She was one of the leaders. She was a, uh, an Anglo-Irish woman who was, born, who was brought up in Lissadell, which is a big house in Sligo, which Yeats used to visit as a child. She herself went on to become a revolutionary, actually the first woman uh, elected to the House of Commons, though she didn't take her seat. She wasn't executed because she was a woman after 1916. Her sister, Eva Gore Booth, went to uh, England and became a, a trade unionist uh, and a feminist. Uh, Yeats, they, they both just died when this poem was written, and Yeats calls it a vague utopia. So um, that, that's uh, who they are. He's reflecting on, upon the past and a lot of these poems on, on, on his own life. Just finally, the last two poems you're going to hear, The Circus Animal's Desertion, which Yeats writes the year of his life, or the year of his death, uh, is about his battling with creativity, 
many of these poems are about battling with creativity and the point of poetry. He's writing poetry, and as he's thinking about the meaning of life, he's also thinking about the role of art and the role of art confronted with violence. Um, in the Circus Animals' Desertion, he's pondering the loss of his symbols, the loss of these, these images and stories and myths that he uses that, I suppose, become incarnate in a vision. Uh, and he, he resolves to get back to the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. Ku Cullen Comforted is a poem about the unwinding and the unravelling of identity. Ku Cullen, all his career has been, or from very, very early in his career, Cucullin, the ancient Irish myth, mythic figure, has been an anti-self to Yeats, a man of action, a military hero. Uh, and here, in an extraordinary opening, a very democratic poem, and democracy is not something that we associate Yeats with. Yeats is interested in hierarchy and oligarchy um, and rhetorical hauteur. But this poem is an extraordinary easing poem, as, as, as Cucullin becomes a shade in the afterlife and finds common cause with these other shades, the cowards, who are opposite to him. OK, sorry, Richard, I've gone on for a little bit more than ten minutes, but hard to push it all those through. Uh, I'll pass over, I think, to Genevieve, who's going to read one of Yeats's towering poems at Second Coming. Turning and turning in the widening gyre the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart. The centre cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed. And everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. Surely some revelation is at hand. Surely the second coming is at hand. The second coming. Hardly are those words out when a vast image out of Spiritus Mundi troubles my sight. Somewhere in sands of the desert, a shape with lion body and the head of a man, a gaze blank and pitiless as the sun is moving its slow thighs, while all about it real shadows of the indignant desert birds. The darkness drops again, but now I know that 20 centuries of stony sleep were vexed to nightmare by a rocking cradle. And what rough beast, its hour come round at last, slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. Leader and the Swan. A sudden blow, the great wings beating still above the staggering girl, her thighs caressed by the dark webs, her nape caught in his bill. He holds her helpless breast upon his breast. How can those terrified, vague fingers push the feathered glory from her loosening thighs? And how can body, laid in that white rush, but feel the strange heart beating where it lies? 
A shudder in the loins engenders there the broken wall, the burning roof and tower and Agamemnon dead. Being so caught up, so mastered by the brute blood of the air, did she put on his knowledge with his power before the indifferent beak could let her drop? Among school children, I walk through the long schoolroom questioning. A kind old nun in a white hood replies, the children learn to cipher and to sing, to study reading books and history, to cut and sew, be neat in everything in the best modern way. The children eyes in momentary wonder stare upon a 60-year-old smiling public man. I dream of a Lydian body bent above a sinking fire, a tale that she told of a harsh reproof or trivial event that changed some childish day to tragedy, told, and it seemed that our two natures blent into a sphere from youthful sympathy, or else to alter Plato's parable into the yoke and white of the one shell. And thinking of that fit of grief or rage, I look upon one child or t'other there and wonder if she stood so at that age. For even daughters of the swan can share something of every paddler's heritage and had that colour upon cheek or hair and thereupon my heart is driven wild. She stands before me as a living child. Her present image floats into the mind. Did quattro cento finger fashion it hollow of cheeks as though it drank the wind and took a mess of shadows for its meat. And I, though never of Lydian kind, had pretty plumage once. Enough of that. Better to smile on all that smile and show there is a comfortable kind of old scarecrow. What youthful mother, a shape upon her lap, Honey of generation had betrayed, and that must sleep, shriek, struggle to escape, as recollection or the drug decide, would think her son, did she but see that shape, with sixty or more winters on his head, a compensation for the pang of his birth, or the uncertainty of his setting forth. Plato thought nature but a spume that plays upon a ghostly paradigm of things. Soldier Aristotle played the taws, upon the bottom of a king of kings. World-famous, golden-thighed Pythagoras fingered upon a fiddlestick or strings what a star sang and careless muses heard. Old clothes upon old sticks to scare a bird. Both nuns and mothers worship images, but those the candles light are not as those that animate a mother's reveries, but keep a marl or a bronze repose. And yet, they too break hearts. O presences that passion, piety, or affection knows, and that all heavenly glory symbolize, O self-born mockers of men's enterprise. Labor is blossoming or dancing where the body is not bruised to pleasure soul, nor beauty born out of its own despair, nor blear-eyed wisdom out of midnight oil. O chestnut tree, great rooted blossomer, 
Are you the leaf, the blossom, or the bowl? O body swayed to music, O brightening glance, how can we know the dancer from the dance? Sailing to Byzantium. That is no country for old men. The young in one another's arms, birds in the trees, those dying generations. At their song, the salmon falls, the mackerel crowded seas, fish, flesh or fowl, commend all summer long whatever is begotten, born and dies. Caught in that sensual music, all neglect monuments of unaging intellect. An aged man is but a paltry thing, a tattered coat upon a stick, unless soul clap its hands and sing, and louder sing for every tatter in its mortal dress. Nor is there singing school, but studying monuments of its own magnificence, and therefore I have sailed the seas and come to the holy city of Byzantium. O sages standing in God's holy fire, as in the gold mosaic of a wall. Come from the holy fire, perne in a gyre, and be the singing masters of my soul. Consume my heart away. Sick with desire and fastened to a dying animal, it knows not what it is. And gather me into the artifice of eternity. Once out of nature, I shall never take my bodily form from any natural thing. But such a form as Grecian goldsmiths make of hammered gold and gold enamelling to keep a drowsy emperor awake, or set upon a golden bough to sing to lords and ladies of Byzantium of what is past or passing or to come. In memory of Eva Gorbuth and Konmarkovich. The light of evening, Lissadel, great windows open to the south. Two girls in silk kimonos, both beautiful, one a gazelle. But a raving autumn shears blossom from the summer's wreath. The older is condemned to death, pardoned, drags out lonely years conspiring among the ignorant. I know not what the younger dreams, some vague utopia, and she seems, when withered old and skeleton gaunt, an image of such politics. Many a time I think to seek one or the other out and speak of that old Georgian mansion, mix pictures of the mind, recall that table and the talk of youth. Two girls in silk kimonos, both beautiful, one a gazelle. Dear shadows, now you know it all. All the folly of a fight, with a common wrong or right. The innocent and the beautiful have no enemy but time. Arise and bid me strike a match, and strike another till time catch. Should the conflagration climb, run till all the sages know... We, the great gazebo built, they convicted us of guilt. 
Bid me strike a match and blow. Crazy Jane talks with the bishop. I met the bishop on the road, and much said he and I, those breasts are flat and fallen now, those veins must soon be dry. Live in a heavenly mansion, not in some foul sty. Fair and foul are near of kin, and fair needs foul, I cried. My friends are gone, but that's a truth nor grave nor bed denied. Learned in bodily lowliness and in the heart's pride, a woman can be proud and stiff when on love intent, but love has pitched his mansion in the place of excrement, for nothing can be soul or whole that has not been rent. Lapis Lazuli. I have heard that hysterical women say they are sick of the palette and fiddle bow, of poets that are always gay, for everybody knows, or else should know, that if nothing drastic is done, aeroplane and zeppelin will come out, pitch like King Billy bombballs in until the town lie beaten flat. All perform their tragic play. There struts Hamlet. There is Lear. That's Ophelia, that Cordelia. Yet they, should the last scene be there, the great stage curtain about to drop, if worthy their prominent part in the play, do not break up their lines to weep. They know that Hamlet and Lear are gay, gaiety transfiguring all that dread. All men have aimed at, found and lost, blackout, heaven blazing into the head, tragedy wrought to its uttermost. Though Hamlet rambles and Lear rages and all the drop scenes drop at once upon a hundred thousand stages, it cannot grow by an inch or an ounce. On their own feet they came, or on shipboard, camelback, horseback, assback, muleback, old civilizations put to the sword. Then they and their wisdom went to rack. No handiwork of Callimachus, who handled marble as if it were bronze, made draperies that seemed to rise when the sea wind swept the corner stand. His long lamp chimney, shaped like the stem of a slender palm, stood but a day. All things fall and are built again, and those that build them again are gay. Two Chinamen, behind them a third, are carved in lapis lazuli. Over them flies a long-legged bird, a symbol of longevity. A third, doubtless a serving man, carries a musical instrument. 
Every discoloration of the stone, every accidental crack or dent seems a watercourse or an avalanche or lofty slope where it still snows, though doubtless plum and cherry branch sweetens the little halfway house those Chinamen climb towards. And I delight to imagine them seated there, There, on the mountain and the sky, on all the tragic scene they stare. One asks for mournful melodies. Accomplished fingers begin to play. Their eyes mid many wrinkles. Their eyes, their ancient glittering eyes, are gay. The Circus Animal's Desertion I sought a theme and sought for it in vain. I sought it daily for six weeks or so. Maybe at last, being but a broken man, I must be satisfied with my heart. Although winter and summer till old age began, my circus animals were all on show. Those stilted boys, that burnished chariot, lion and woman and the Lord knows what. What can I but enumerate old themes? First that sea rider Oshin, led by the nose through three enchanted islands, allegorical dreams, vain gaiety, vain battle, vain repose, themes of the embittered heart, or so it seems, that might adorn old songs or courtly shows. But what cared I that set him on to ride? I starved for the bosom of his fairy bride. And then a counter-truth filled out its play. The Countess Kathleen was the name I gave it. She, pity-crazed, had given her soul away. But masterful heaven had intervened to save it. I thought my dear must her own soul destroy. So did fanaticism and hate enslave it. And this brought forth a dream. And soon enough, this dream itself had all my thought and love. And when the fool and blind man stole the bread, Cahulun fought the ungovernable sea. Heart mysteries there, and yet when all is said, it was the dream itself enchanted me. Character isolated by a deed to engross the present and dominate memory. Players and painted stage took all my love, and not those things they were emblems of. Those masterful images become complete, grew in pure mind, but out of what began? A mound of refuse or the sweepings of a street, old kettles, old bottles in a broken can, old iron, old bones, old rags, that raving slut who keeps the till. Now that my ladder's gone, I must lie down where all the ladders start, in the foul rag and bone shop of the heart. Cullen comforted. A man that had six mortal wounds, a man violent and famous, strode among the dead. Eyes stared out of the branches and were gone. Then, 
Certain shrouds that muttered head to head came and were gone. He leant upon a tree as though to meditate on wounds and blood. A shroud that seemed to have authority among those bird-like things came and let fall a bundle of linen. Shrouds by two and three came creeping up because the man was still. And thereupon that linen carrier said, Your life can grow much sweeter if you will obey our ancient rule and make a shroud. Mainly because of what we only know, the rattle of those arms makes us afraid. We thread the needle's eyes and all we do, all must together do. That done, the man took up the nearest and began to sew. Now must we sing and sing the best we can, but first you must be told our character. Convicted cowards all, by kindred slain, or driven from home and left to die in fear. They sang, but had nor human tunes nor words, though all was done in common as before. They had changed their throats and had the throats of birds. Uh, that, that, that poem um, was written um, shortly before Yeats's death in 1939. Um, Richard at the start mentioned Seamus Heaney, the other Nobel laureate for poetry, who um, was born in 1939, the year Yeats died, and he selected Cuckoo and Comfort. Yeats wrote brilliantly on Heaney, and, and he wrote the introduction to one of the volumes that was in sale upstairs, but he selected that as his favourite uh, uh, poem. And we're going to end looking at you know, Yeats, huge figure, huge towering influence on the poets who came after him, but often an Oedipal influence. Po- Heaney takes poetry in a very different direction, away from the uh, oratorical grandeur and extraordinary vision of Yeats towards a much more ordinary idiom. Uh, W.H. Auden, the English poet, also had an ambiguous relationship with Yeats. Like many English poets and commentators, he was uncomfortable with the silliness, silly willy, the occult, uh, interests that Yeats had. Uh, Auden, um, Philip Larkin had the same response. Um, but at the same time, couldn't escape his influence. He was also Auden in the 30s, and this is 1939, he writes this elegy, but Auden, like his generation, were very left-leaning and supported the um, uh, Republic in the, Frank- in the Spanish Civil War. So Auden has an, uh, recognises Yeats's genius. How could he not? and recognises his worthiness for an elegy, but has these two problems with it, particularly with Yeats's politics, which moved to the right. Um, they were always on, on the right, but he moved quite uh, um, to, the, to the authoritarian right in the 1920s. Uh, but for Auden, time that is intolerant of the brave and innocent and indifferent and weak to a beautiful physique, worships language and forgives everyone by whom it lives, as he says. So we're going to finish now by listening to Auden uh, recite his great poem in memory of W.B. Yeats from 1939. Well, I think Auden was wrong and Yeats was right. The supernatural world is alive and well. And this little tune is... um, (laughs) uh, bears witness to this. I learned this tune last year in Ireland at the Willie Clancy Summer School from Kiranimoini, and it's called The Drowning at Brookless. 
So there was a witch who lived in a seaside town of Brooklyn, and each evening the men would come home from the fishing and they would bring her a fish for her dinner. And one day they'd had a terrible, uh, a terrible day and no, and no catch at all, very few fish. And the witch came down to ask for her dinner and they said, well, we have nothing to give you, we only have what we have for our families. And she said, give me my fish or you'll be sorry. And they said, well, we can't, we can't. Um, so she went home. She put her cauldron on the fire and lit the fire under the water and she stirred and she stirred and she tore eight little pieces of paper that was a number of the fishing boats in the village and she put them into the cauldron. And she stirred and she stirred and they disappeared to the bottom of the cauldron. And the next day the fleet went out and nobody came back. <laughs>